0: Politics, politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finnelli. Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists. Business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli.
1: Good afternoon, this is Dean Finelli with Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you for joining us today, where we talk about all the issues in the life science industry, as well as the politics that drive that industry. We're focusing a lot on politics lately, as uh, the situation in Ukraine really is just such a a, a tragic situation. Uh, The images coming out of Ukraine just are heart-wrenching. The U.S. has officially accused uh, Putin and his forces of committing war crimes against civilians in Ukraine, um, Secretary of State Blinken announced that, based on the uh, review of available information and intelligence sources, uh, that the, what's going on there does, would amount to what are, basically would arise uh, to the level of war crimes. Of course, you know this is that's a, a decision that uh, the International Criminal Court would have to determine. But certainly, you know, when we see those images coming out of of Ukraine, it's just really uh, almost unquestionable that what's going on there uh would rise to the level of war crimes we're seeing uh beyond just civilian civilians being targeted we're seeing maternity hospitals targeted we're seeing civilians just basically be assassinated on the streets so really just shocking situation there so it's uh good that the i think the united states finally stepped up and made that allegation uh we'll certainly have to see if it has uh The ability to have teeth to bring any of these individuals to justice, but that's kind of a more longer term issue. But uh, first steps of at least agreeing that there evidence there would support that allegation uh, is good news. The ancillary effects of the war certainly are affecting the U.S. when it comes to prices. Gas prices continue to rise. I think it's, you know, when we look at gas prices now, uh, we hear the Biden administration suggesting that this is Putin's gas tax or Putin's causing this. And certainly, without a doubt, the war in Ukraine has uh, exacerbated costs uh, when it relates to gas prices. But, you know, we have to be honest, these prices were going up before Putin and Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, They were up about 40 percent before the invasion started in February. So, you know, while certainly the, as I mentioned, the Russian uh, war in Ukraine has exacerbated these effects, the policies that underlying policies that Joe Biden and the Biden administration Uh, have really undertaken, have put us really on our heels in this situation, which is unfortunate. If we think back only a few years ago, we were energy independent. You know, one of the first things, if not the first thing uh, President Biden did when he came into office was cut off the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, So that is no longer happening. And he withdrew sanctions on Nord Stream 2 that the Trump administration had. Uh, So, you know, when we look at the the combination of those effects, in addition to the fact that uh, we have a tremendous amount of oil in the U.S. that's just not being tapped, you know, for the, the really it seems like the far left uh, Democrats have hijacked the the climate situation and the whole uh, energy situation in the U.S. Uh, it seems the, these policy decisions that are being made now are being driven by far left politics. You know, when we think about, you know, if they're really concerned about climate, concerned about uh, the global warming, then, you know, you would think you'd want the U.S. to do this. The way the U.S. produces energy is a lot cleaner than the energy we buy abroad. You know, going to Venezuela, going to Saudi Arabia uh, to ask them to increase oil to the U.S., you know, just seems, uh, it's not shocking, I hate to use hyperbole, but just doesn't seem like the right thing to do when we have reserves here. You know, we know Venezuela is another authoritarian regime. Uh, There was a recent article in Foreign Policy Magazine suggesting that, you know, because of the oil that's in Venezuela, there could be uh, a situation between Venezuela and Guyana, its neighboring country, over these oil reserves. So, you know, just not the type of people we want to get in bed with, especially, you know, when we know we have enough oil here. So remains to be seen. The president has indicated that he is currently in uh, Europe now. Uh, I believe he's in Poland today, but he has indicated that uh, we're going to try and help the Europeans any way we can to alleviate their Dependence on Russian uh, fuel and oil uh, remains to be seen how this will be achieved, but hopefully uh, it's achieved mainly by using U.S. oil and not, uh, you know, oil from other authoritarian regimes. So, uh, interesting situation when we look at uh, Democrats in general. Uh, really, the situation when you look at polls coming out uh, is really bleak for them this coming fall. You know, although you know some of what President Biden does has sort of bumped up uh, his. Approval rating overall, though, when you see these issues like defund the police, you know, the situation in major cities is extremely dangerous. Uh, You know, we're seeing crime, serious crime go through the roof and it continues to do this. And I just, you know, it's really you scratch your head when you see these politics and these policies that are are being proposed that just, you know, a reasonable person seeing them, you know, you defund the police. I don't know if it takes, you know, some degree in sociology or criminology to figure out that that would probably lead to more crime, but, you know, I think a reasonable person would would do that. So I really don't understand what's going on with some of these policies, whether it's, you know, shutting down uh, the Keystone Pipeline, not allowing the U.S. to be energy independent. And one of the issues that we really hear is, you know, when we're talking about the oil industry and we're talking about renewable energy, it doesn't, it's not, in my opinion, at least it's not a, a binary choice. These two do not have to be mutually exclusive. You know, we're certainly not there yet in a country, in our country where we could say, okay, let's just cut off fossil fuels. We just, you know, the country would come to a standstill. So I think the, again, a reasonable person could probably come to the conclusion that we still need fossil fuels, but that doesn't mean we can't drive towards a more energy efficient and renewable energy type economy. Uh, but again, I mean, if it were up to me, I think I would uh, allow the, uh, the, However, the extraction of fossil fuel, the extraction of oil and natural gas in the U.S., uh, while pumping and subsidizing uh, the renewable energy industries, you know, we can certainly do this the same way the NIH pumps money into the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. You know, we can pump money into uh, renewable energies for electric cars. You know, we're hearing a lot of issues about the batteries in electric cars. So there's areas for innovation there. Uh, And I just think there's a lot of opportunities that are being missed. Uh, I'd like to introduce our featured guest today, Ms. Tamara Laschek, uh, who is an author, a career coach, and a former Wall Street executive. Uh, she recently ran for New York State Assembly. I'm very pleased to have Tamara on the show. Tomorrow, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So we hear, you know, one of the things I didn't mention uh, in the little intro was you know, we're hearing about this BA2 Omicron variant and, you know, certain stations you listen to, it's, you know, put your mask back on, They're, it's, it's, the outrage and just the, the hysterics over the fact that we're getting back to normal, uh, you know, again, our head, head scratching, I don't really understand, you know, we're two years into this, so we have a lot of data, we know who the high risk people are, people over 65, we know what we have to do to protect those people. Yet we're still hearing, I mean, I just don't understand, you know, why we'd want to mandate, okay, the whole country has to either lock down, wear masks, ma- vaccine mandates, when we know who the highest risk people are. You know, when you hear, when you hear a lot of these issues, are these just political or ha- am I missing something? Is there some facts that I, I'm misunderstanding? Yes, I think
2: that to answer your question, not that you're misunderstanding, yes, it is political. Um, and I think that fear is a very powerful tool to be used as a mechanism for control. And that is what we're seeing. We've seen that all along. If you actually look at the data, um, COVID is not a, it's not such a, um, um, a terminal disease. I mean, this less than 1% of people who are dying from COVID has a very high recovery rate. So why we have, uh, implemented such draconian measures is, is really makes you stop, scratch your head and say, okay, there's gotta be something else going on here. But yet people continue to adhere to these, uh, to these mandates. I mean, I live in New York city and people are still wearing their masks all over the subways and everything, even though the mask mandates have been dropped.
1: Yeah, it's really, you know, certainly I could, if we go back two years ago, I think we could all get it right. We didn't know, we didn't know about asymptomatic transmission. We didn't know who the high risk, the most high risk people were. We didn't know if how affected children would be. So look, we can look back to March of 2020 and say, okay, you know, let's have a mask mandate then because there's something out there that seems dangerous. We have a lot of people hospitalized, but now fast forward mm-hmm. two years, we have a lot of that data, as you mentioned. So what, what do you think the underlying issue is, I mean, is it just people are, you know, like sheep that want to be led or is there some, you know,
2: ulterior motives here? Well, I think people, I think people are sheep. Yes. Um, I think that, um, no, I do think that there's a plan and a strategy behind all of this. And I think that it is a power grab and a means for the establishment to get more and more control. I mean, anytime we have a crisis, we lose more and more of our rights. We saw that with the Patriot Act and 9-11. You know, that really led us into a very dark place as a country with, you know, us saying, keep us safe. We were so terrified after 9-11 that we didn't care if we were stopped and illegally searched as long as you kept us safe. So fear is a very powerful tool, and you never get those rights back. And what did that do? That allowed for the collection of all our cell phone data. Okay, now we're going to another phase, which is, you know, the vaccine mandate and an electronic form of the vaccine mandate. We already have all the cell phone data. Now we're going to have, you know, this electronic uh, passport and the tie to the social credit score, which we're seeing little bits and pieces of that implemented already. I mean, we are headed to an authoritarian regime just like China. And people need to wake up and really stand up against this. And they are. And I have to say they are. I think that more and more people wake up every single day. Um, and I'm very optimistic, especially when you look back at, uh, at the American Revolution and the whole, how only 5% of the people fought in that. And we still won our independence. So, you know, we don't need that many people to actually fight this battle. And we have far more than I think we have far more waking up uh, than we would have imagined. We're going to win this battle.
1: So how long do you think this goes on? Because, you know, when we, as I mentioned, we're two years into this, you know, it's we know that kids, relatively speaking, are, you know, they can contract the virus, of course. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, healthy kids will be fine on this. Uh, You know, I I heard an interesting Mm -hmm. uh, stat from a doctor I was talking to. He said the number of children that have died during the pandemic because of the coronavirus is less than the number of kids Each year that die being strangled by their sheets. So, you know, when you put you have that perspective, why do you why do you think this is being perpetuated? I mean, you know, again, reasonable people can hear this data, but, you know, and I certainly understand there's a lot of politicization here. People are using it for votes. But, you know, when are people going to come around or is it just or are they just not?
2: Well, I think that they're going to come around when enough people stand up. And we're seeing this happening now in terms of the children. The reason why they're expanding the vaccine to children is because I don't believe that they're hitting their numbers with adults. They never expected that there would be that much uh, vaccine resistance um, at the adult level. And, you know, if you really think about it, only half the country is vaccinated, which is truly incredible given the massive propaganda um, and, and advertising campaigns and, you know, the, the bribes, you know, free pizza, million-dollar lotteries, um, free ice cream, and still only half the country is vaccinated. So that, you know, that should be very telling. So they need to, you know, in order to hit their targets, they need to now include children in that. So that's sort of one thing. And then there's lots of organizations that are fighting this and are are very successful. I mean, I think you and I talked about Naomi Wolf. Um, She has, um, you know, an organization, and they recently actually had a lawyer do a webinar and talk about how you can file lawsuits against, you know, your governors, your mayors, and your politicians that are implementing these unconstitutional mandates, okay, and even file criminal charges against them for the mask mandate and, ch- and children because they're saying it's child abuse. I mean, you know, having children sit in masks all day in school, breathing, you know, breathing that, you know, that air and, uh, you know, also impairing their development. I mean, children learn from facial features and things like that. They're saying IQs drop on average to over 20 points in children because of these masks. So really going uh, going against the politicians and really holding them accountable. I mean, the week after all those mandates, I'm sorry, all those lawsuits were filed, uh, Kathy Hochul and Mayor Adams dropped the vaccine mandate in New York.
1: Right. That's interesting. And I heard another interesting statistic about uh, as of December, the CDC said 95 percent of Americans have antibodies to the Uh, coronavirus, meaning they've either gotten the vaccine or they've had natural immunity from a natural infection. So, you know, we're in a pretty good spot there. And, you know, that um, a lot of that immunity has or or those infections were the result of Omicron and Delta being so uh, contagious. But that said, you know, again, we know who and I'm certainly just to be clear, I don't think either of us are saying we're against vaccines. I think what we're saying is, you know, people should have the right to make a decision And the government has a role to provide accurate, factual information to allow individuals and Americans to make an informed decision. So, you know, when we hear about these vaccine mandates uh, and vaccines in general, you know, certainly vaccines have saved millions of lives. And I don't think either of us are suggesting that we're anti-vaxxers for for our listeners. What I think we're the point of this conversation is that the the time for mandates is is past, and the the role of government, you know, is has really been a little bit misguided. And, you know, that some of the information coming out of the CDC and FDA has been inconsistent, and even in some instances, uh contradictory. So that's really, I think, what we're, the point we're driving here is government certainly has a role here. But when you're telling people, you know, to all Americans to get vaccinated, and meanwhile, you're, we know 99.9% of Americans are safe. I think the role of government here would be to advise Americans, okay, these are the risk, these are the high-risk group. We recently heard Pfizer come out with a potential, with a fourth, ask for authorization for a a fourth shot, a second booster, and they were focused on high-risk individuals, 65 people, 65 or older with comorbidities. So when we're talking about civil liberties, that's a whole separate issue, and I just wanted to make that uh, distinction tomorrow. So When we Mm -hmm. where do you think we're going in this country? Because, you know, I mentioned earlier, we have some of these policies like defund the police. Uh, You mentioned you're in New York. You know, the the New York district attorney has been all over the news for some of these policies that have just, you know, made a lot of cities that follow these defund the police policies very unsafe. Um, You know, and and again, how how are they they seem on their face unreasonable? Why Why are they like who's who's believing this? (laughs)
2: <laughs> there's a, there's a good amount of people, particularly in New York, who are behind this. I mean, it's amazing how you know how radical New York City is, and how people really do support some of this stuff. It's it's crazy. I mean, I remember when I was running for office, and I would be talking to people um, in my district, and you know, I'd be pointing at a burning building, you know, amidst the Black Lives Matter protest, and I'm like, "Are you okay with this?" And they were like, "Well, it's about fairness and equality." And I was like, this building on fire. Like, like, I mean, it was just like in the media we used to, you know, they would show, show pictures of burning buildings and they were like mostly peaceful protests. I mean, if you repeat this over and over, people believe this. It's, it's, it's really crazy to me, especially if you look back to where we were before COVID um, under President Trump and how great the country was doing. And I mean, the economy was strong. Anyone who wanted a job could have one. Unemployment is historically. Uh, Black unemployment was at its lowest. I mean, the country was firing on all cylinders. And yet people somehow think that he did a bad job as president. And it's like, your life is great. Everything is going well. Yet somebody's whispering in your ear saying, your life is really not that great. You're really not that happy. And it's all because of that guy over there in the office, you know, in the Oval Office. And people are like, yeah, you're right. My life's not so great. Like it's 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 amazing to me. Amazing to me how people we have just lost the ability to really think for ourselves and think critically.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I read an article saying that uh President Biden's disapproval rating was at fifty five percent, his approval rating uh was only at forty percent. You know, and and one of the kind of uh I don't know if I don't think it was Babylon B, but I think it was uh you know, a conservative uh, news site I was reading, and they said, had Biden come in and just done nothing, his and just kept yes. the status quo, he'd probably be at eighty percent approval. You know, instead he, he you know, from day one, he's had this kind of let's reverse everything. Um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, and everything just seems to be going. You know, inflation's through the roof. You know, we're basically on the precipice of a potential World War Three. And, you know, the country is just uh, he was he ran on a platform of unifying the country, yet he's gone far left. And, you know, it's almost as if we elected Bernie Sanders.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, Tamara, thank you so much for for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio. Uh, Where can our listeners uh, find you if they want to find out more information on you?
2: Yeah, you can find me on all social media platforms. I'm pretty much under my name um, at Tamara Lashcheck. um, And my website is TamaraLashcheck.com. So, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, all social media, Twitter.
1: Tamara, thank you so much for joining us today and for that information. Greatly appreciate it. And stay safe and look forward to speaking with you again. And thank you all for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio a lot of information. I know we steered a little bit more on the politics side today instead of the life science side, but, uh, you know, just so much information. We didn't even touch on uh, Supreme Court nominee um, Brown Jackson being uh, interviewed from the Senate, but nonetheless, we'll touch on life sciences more next week. Uh, Tamara Lefcek, thank you so much for joining us again, and thank you all, and have a great night.
0: Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences.